Happy New Year. Uh, I wanted to start this year with a story and a quote. I like stories. I like quotes. So I decided, why choose? Let's just start the year with both of them. I don't know if you ever heard the name George Mueller. George Mueller was a, um, he was a Christian evangelist. He was the director of Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. He was born, make sure I get this right, born in 1805 and died in 1898. That's a, that's a good long life. Didn't live to those 1900s, but he was close. Um, and uh, if, if you've ever heard his story, George Mueller lived a, a remarkable life by anybody's standard. Throughout the course of his life, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. Uh, he established 117 schools that offered Christian education to over 120,000 children. And he did so much work for the poor that he was accused, wrap your head around this, he was accused by people in his society of raising the poor above their, and I'm going to use air quotes here, natural station in life. That was the rock that people threw against him. And the thing that he was probably most known for wasn't so much the things that he did, it's the way that he did it, because in everything that he did, he has this, um, had this seemingly otherworldly faith, because despite all of the orphanages that, that he started, Uh, And the amount of money that that required, he never asked for governmental support, and he actually refused to take a personal salary himself. He simply prayed that God would move on the hearts of people to give to the work that he decided to spend his life um, accomplishing, and his his whole life is, is filled with examples that are really difficult to explain away unless the God that he prayed to is real and actually answers prayer. For instance, on on one occasion, this is a really well-documented event. It's not like George Mueller just told people this. Uh, But on one occasion, his orphanage had completely run out of food. And so he led the children in prayer around the table to to give thanks for the food that God had yet to provide. At the conclusion of the prayer, uh, they were met by a knock on the door. They opened the door. It was a baker that donated enough bread to feed all of the children, and he was, he was immediately followed by a milkman who gave uh, the orphanage all of the milk in his truck because, you can look this up, his milk truck just happened to break down outside the orphanage while they were praying. And his ministry spilled with stories like this. Anyway, I, I wanted to read you... Um, I've actually shared with you bits of this quote before, but I want to read it to you in its entirety. Because you think about all that he was able to accomplish in his life, you know, there must have been so many pressures, so many stresses, so many demands, so many things that maybe a number of people can relate to this morning. Here's what he said. According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. He then went on to say, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Those are the words of somebody, obviously, who understands that Christianity contains within it resources that enable a person to experience a deep, quiet happiness 
regardless of whatever variables exist in a person's life, whatever pressures and stresses and demands and all of it. So what I wanted to do today, instead of simply saying Happy New Year and then moving on to our next sermon series, because God saw fit that uh, the first day of the year happened to be a Sunday, I thought today provides us with a unique opportunity uh, to talk about how and why Christianity enables you and I to be happy, to have a happy new year, regardless of what we're experiencing right now or whatever God sees fit to lead us through in 2023. So that's what I want to talk about. This is just going to be a one-off sermon, and we'll start a new series next week. But this morning, to start this year, I want to talk about uh, how and why Christianity uniquely enables us to have a happy new year. To explain that, we're going to be looking at, at uh, just three verses this morning. That's Romans chapter 8, very famous passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Let me go ahead and read that, and we'll get into it. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who were called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. What you have here in these three verses uh, are three principles. And these principles, when when they're understood, when they're meditated on, when they're driven into our hearts to the point that they become the foundation of our lives, they enable us to be happy regardless of our circumstances. And just to sort of remove all mystery and tension, I'm going to tell you exactly what they are on the front end of our time together. In verse 28, the principle that we have here is that our bad things will turn out for good. In verse 29, the principle is that our good things can never be lost. And in verse 30, the principle is that the best things are yet to come. And those three ideas, when they coalesce, they enable an individual to be happy, to experience happiness in God, even in the darkest times of life. So I wanted to spend our time together at the beginning of this year uh, going through all three of those verses and the principles therein. So with that, let's go ahead and get to our first idea. First idea of the new year, uh, the first reason that Christianity enables a person to be happy regardless of what they're going through is, number one, it's because in Jesus our bad things turn out for good. That's exactly what we find in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who were called according to his purpose. So I read from the Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible, which I really like, but unfortunately I have to admit that that version does not really do this verse justice. Because when it translates it as all things work together for the good of those who love God, that makes all things the subject. It almost seems like given enough time, things will just magically work themselves out. But if you, if you read this uh, in the Greek, a literal translation of what Paul originally wrote here would be something like, for those loving him, God works together all things for good. And so here's the principle that we find here. Uh, it's, it's that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, The promise in this verse is that God will cause all things to work together for the good. 
And what I want to do is just pull two implications that I think are incredibly important to spend time reflecting on uh, out of this principle here. All right? The first one is this. For this verse, for the Word of God, for, I'll put it this way, for God through His Word to say that He will work all things together for the good, if we just think about this, what this implies first and foremost is that you and I will experience all things, even things that are not good. So the idea here that, that's stated kind of as a theoretical concept, but it's certainly something that we see on display on almost every story recorded for us in the pages of Scripture, is that everything that can happen to a person can happen to a Christian. And the reason that's so important to talk about is because, at least in my own life, but I think this is generally the case with with people, that most of the time what tends to really upend us about our suffering is not our suffering itself as much as it is the mindset that we didn't even know we carried into our suffering in the first place. Because I I think it's fair to say that probably with all of us, to one degree or another, even if we'd never say this out loud, There's a tendency in the human heart to hold on to this idea that as long as I love and serve God and I try to be a good person and do good to other people, that there's at least some things that God would never allow a person like me to experience. The problem with that is that that thesis is nowhere supported in Scripture and not even in human history. And that's why if you, if you follow uh, Paul's train of thought a little bit further on in Romans 8, when he gets to 35, Paul asks a rhetorical question. It's an important rhetorical question. He says, who or what can separate us from the love of Jesus? Basically, Romans 8, he's been building up to this case about the love of God and what that means and how that can transform a human heart and a human life. And he, he then asks the question, what if anything can separate us from that love once we put our trust in Jesus? And then he starts to name things as potential answers to that question. He talks about affliction, anguish, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And what he's saying, at least there, is that you can, a person who has the love of Jesus in their life can have all of those things in their life as well, as Paul himself did. For the very first followers of Jesus, it, it was not difficult for them to understand that the love of God and profound suffering can, can coincide. One does not preclude the presence of the other. They never looked at suffering uh, as evidence that God somehow doesn't love us. What Paul is saying there is that a a person who has the love of Jesus in their life can and very well may experience all of those things like like the Bible and, and, and history tells us Paul himself did. And so first and foremost, God working all things together for the good means that we should not be surprised when we experience all things in our lives. That's the first principle. The second one, this this is basic and this might sound simple, but what we're being told here in Romans 8 is that although bad things will happen, somehow God, and it shouldn't surprise us if we go through something that we can't figure out how, but what we're being told here is that though bad things will happen, somehow God in his wisdom and in his power and in his goodness is going to cause bad things to work together for good. Now that might sound simple or obvious to you, but but what I want to pull out from here specifically is that just because the Bible tells us, when the Bible says here and elsewhere uh, that God will cause bad things to work together for good, here's what that does not mean. And I think this is so important for us to drill down on. That does not mean, the Bible does not teach 
that bad things are really just good things in disguise. And what I mean by that is, is God never asks any of us to experience something that's bad and pretend like it is anything other than what it is, a bad thing. Now, if you're wondering why I would go that particular route with this idea, it's because in, in, over the last 10 years, in my time as a pastor, specifically sitting with people one-on-one, I've noticed that there's a specific kind of person, and I think I, 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 maybe I even see this in, in myself, but I've certainly heard it in other people as well, that, that specifically with people who come out of uh, what you might describe as very fundamentalist, religious homes and backgrounds, as much as there are you know, a lot of benefits to, to, to that environment, what I've noticed is that a lot of times people that come out of that environment tend to carry with them this mindset, and maybe this will hit home with some of us today, this mindset that, 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 that believes that if God allowed me to experience something, then it must be good because that's His will for my life. And therefore, to grieve whatever that experience is uh, or, or, or to call that something other than good is actually disrespectful to God because what I'm doing is, I'm, is I'm, I'm calling into question God's sovereign plan for my life. And as much as this, maybe this surprises you, maybe you've never heard this before, I just want to tell you that is, that is totally unbiblical, and actually nobody proves that point uh, more clearly and profoundly than Jesus Christ himself. One of the most important moments in Jesus' life for me to return to, and I have returned to it over and over again, is this specific encounter Jesus had with people who were experiencing profound pain, recorded for us in in, uh, John's Gospel account, chapter 11, uh, when Jesus stood before the tomb of his friend Lazarus. If you've ever heard that story before, you know that, that Lazarus, Jesus' friend, had been dead for four days. And so all of the friends in the family of Lazarus were grieving what, by all accounts, looked to them a, a hopeless, very tragic situation. Jesus shows up. He arrives into that scene four days later. And if you know how the story ends, you know that Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so the point is, just consider this, Jesus knew how the story would end, That means that Jesus knew that that whole situation would go on to glorify God and really strengthen the faith of the people that were touched by it, specifically because of how painful and tragic and hopeless that situation felt. Yet, when Jesus stood by the tomb of his friend, what we're told in literally the shortest verse recorded for us in the entire canon of Scripture is two simple but I think incredibly profound words. We are told Jesus wept. Now, what I'd ask you to consider there is what Jesus did not do despite knowing what Jesus knew. Jesus did not walk up to the tomb and chastise these people for questioning God's sovereign plan in Lazarus in their lives. Uh, Jesus did not show up to the tomb and pretend like what they were experiencing was anything other than a painful tragedy. Jesus didn't say, hey, you know, look on the bright side. This isn't really a tragedy. It's just an opportunity for the healing power of God to be put on display. Just just hang tight, gang. What Jesus did is he showed up in the lives of people who were experiencing profound pain, people who were weeping, and he simply decided to weep with them. And the reason that Jesus did that is because the bad thing that he was about to turn to good was still a bad thing in and of itself. Now, the, the point that I want, I'm trying to drive at here, which I think is so important specifically for Christians to understand, is that Jesus' work at the tomb of Lazarus and ultimately Jesus' work on the cross shows what the heart of God is like. 
And what it shows us about the heart of God is that God hates death and all the pain that it causes. It grieves him. It moves him. Just like it moves and grieves us. What, what, what Jesus' work at the tomb and Jesus' work on the cross shows us is that not only does Jesus hate death and the pain it causes, Jesus hates suffering. Jesus hates what sin has done to his creation and to every single one of us. He hates it so much that he was willing to roll up his sleeves and enter into the mess that we have made of his creation in order to take that burden on himself so that he could destroy it without destroying us. And the point is, if we claim to be his followers, then what that means at least is we are called to see things the way that he sees things and respond to things the way that he responds to things, which simply means calling a bad thing exactly what it is, something that is bad. God never calls us to play pretend with tragedy and not feel it and grieve it the way that he himself did. Now, like I mentioned, the mystery of God's sovereignty and his wisdom and his goodness is that God does not need us to have good lives to cause our lives ultimately to work out for good. God is so powerful that he can take even bad things and he will take even bad things to work together for good. We might not, we might not see the fulfillment of that in a, in a, in a week or a year, or a decade, and, and maybe the truth is we'll never see more than a fraction of, this fulfill, of the fulfillment of this promise in this life, but that's what the promise is, that God is so powerful that he will cause even the unequivocally bad things that he allows you and I to experience somehow in the end to work together for a peculiar glory that could not have been achieved if not for the bad things that God walked you through. That's what Romans 8.28 is saying. So the first reason that a Christian can be happy, regardless of what God's walking them through, is because we hold on to the promise that our bad things will work out for good. Secondly, the promise here, the principle here, is number two, our second idea today, it's that the good things we have cannot be lost. You see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It says, for those he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, being Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers. So, so Romans 8, 28, the verse that we just spent some time in, is obviously a very famous verse. And like all famous verses, there's a tendency to pull it out of context and misunderstand it and use it to make promises that God never designed to promise. So here's the question. If Romans 8, 28 promises that God is going to cause all things to work together for the good, I think the most logical question we could ask there is, okay, well, then what exactly is the good? And Romans 8, 29 answers that question. In this verse here, we're being told what it is that every single thing that happens in your life is moving you toward. Paul uses a really scary term here that people have liked to fight over for the last 2,000 years, predestined, which I'm not even going to begin to get into all the implications of, but I'll just tell you, the Greek word that Paul uses here literally means to fix or determine something ahead of time. That's what that word means. So what, what Paul is saying here is that if you love God, there is something that is absolutely fixed in your life that will happen no matter what, whether you like it or not. There is no variable that can enter into your life that will change the outcome that God has determined if you love him. Something is predestined to happen in your life. And what it is that's predestined to happen is that you will be conformed into the image of Jesus. So pardon me for getting a little too Greek this morning maybe, but the word that Paul uses here comes from the Greek word morphe, which if it sounds familiar, it's because it's from that word that we get our English word metamorphosis. Uh, what Paul is saying 
is that once you give your life to Jesus from that moment forward, everything that God allows you to experience, everything that happens in your life will have no power over you except to to transform you in the deepest recesses of your being into the image of his son, Jesus. There is nothing that happens in your life that can disrupt that or destroy that or derail that in any permanent way. Here's why that particular theological truth is so meaningful to me, maybe more meaningful than, than, than it ever has been at any point in my life. This summer, I read a book by David Brooks called, I, I actually referenced this to you in the summer, the book's called The Second Mountain. And if you've ever read David Brooks, he, he, um, he, he has an interesting personal story. Years ago, he wrote a book called The Road to Character, which was a breakout success. It kind of catapulted him to fame, which by his own admission, essentially ruined his life. And in the wake of all of the success that that garnered for him, it led to uh, him getting a divorce and experiencing profound loneliness and depression and having some sort of rock-bottom existential crisis of sorts. And it was in and through that that he actually came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And all of that 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 happened to him basically led to the writing of this book, The Second Mountain. And the the thesis of the book, I, I don't know if you've ever heard it said this way, but I've heard it said that the first part of our life is, is really defined by us trying to get our lives together. Not that that's ever officially over, but that's really what, what the first part of our life is primarily about. I've heard it said that the second part of our life begins and, and we really begin to mature when a shift takes place in us where we move from trying to get our lives together to beginning to figure out how to give our lives away. And the book, The Second Mountain, is, is really fundamentally about that. There's a section of that book that deals with relationships and how and why we relate to the people closest to us the way that we do. And he said something that I highlighted back then. It was meaningful to me, and and maybe this is going to resonate with somebody this morning. I'll read it to you. He said, those of us who wish to pride ourselves on autonomy, on the self-made life, on freedom of choice, are often humbled by the recognition that archaic patterns are playing through us. Down in the unconscious layer of our minds, there are complexes and wounds that lead us to act in the same self-destructive ways again and again. And I've, I've never heard it phrased this way, but I love the way he puts this. Your personality is the hidden history of the places where love entered your life or was withdrawn from your life. It's shaped by the ways your parents loved you, the ways they did not love you. All of us have certain attachment patterns lodged deep in our minds. And what that author's saying here is something I don't think any of us are particularly comfortable admitting, but what he's saying is that to a large degree, we're not self-made individuals. To a large degree, we're the product of things that happen to us. Now, I've talked to enough people over the last 10 years in one-on-one settings to know exactly how true that is. And if, you, you know, if you've ever heard me talk a little bit about my own story, uh, when I was considering making the change from my old career in the fire service to my career now in ministry, I, I did a, um, what I would consider a good amount of work in a counselor's office myself. It was back in the summer of 2012 where really for the first time in my life, I started trying to face and come to terms with and process and, 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 and look at the way that the things that I'd experienced in the formative years of my life were, were shaping me as a young adult at the time. Uh, it was that process that really led me to leave the fire service behind and come in ministry. And, um, and since then, over the last 10 years in ministry, I've had the, the honor and the privilege of walking a number of people through that process themselves. 
And so what, this is one of the most unique parts about this job in particular is, is people just have a tendency to invite pastors into those holy ground moments. And over the years, I've sat with I don't know how many men and women one-on-one, and I've watched when they just began to sort of break and sort of unravel when for sometimes the first time in their life, they were coming to the realization that this author's talking about here. They were coming to the realization that they have been profoundly shaped and affected by things that happened to them in the formative years of their life. Whether that was a relationship that they did or did not have with their parents, or, or it was abuse or neglect that they suffered sometimes at the hands of someone that they trusted, or whether it was a childhood tragedy that they're just now realizing in adulthood that no one ever, including themselves, really fully healed from or even began to face and deal with. And my point in saying all this is that none of us are self-made individuals. We are products to a greater degree than any of us are comfortable admitting uh, of the things that happen to us. Now, in saying that, I say that is certainly not a hopeful idea if you leave it there in and of itself. And maybe somebody's listening to this and saying, hey, remember when you talked about happiness on the front end of our, our time together? Where's that at? And how come this didn't fall on the cutting room floor? I say all that to say that's what makes the theological truth here in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, so meaningful to me personally. Because what Paul is saying here is that when you become a Christian in that moment, your life, in that moment, your life is now defined by something far greater than the things that either did or did not happen to you. What we're being told here is that in Jesus, absolutely nothing in your life has the power to stop what God has determined to do in your life, not your childhood. Your childhood's not strong enough to stop it. Not your childhood, your trauma, your parents, your boss, the things that other people have said and done to you, or even the things that you have said and done yourself has the power to stop what God's determined to do. So to anyone who has ever thought, as I myself have, to anyone listening to this who's ever thought, God, why is it that you allowed me to experience the things you've allowed me to experience? Because now I'll never be what I otherwise could have been. Now I'm destined to be, you know, a a fractured husk of what I could have been if I was dealt a better hand in life or, you know, if I never experienced this thing that I'm still so wounded and shaped and hurt by even today. To anybody who's ever thought that, I just want to tell you the promise of Christianity is is that the things that happen to you, not just the good things, but experience usually teaches us, especially the bad things, in the end will have no power over you but to do precisely what God has determined in you, which is to conform you, to transform you into the image of his son Jesus. So what we're being told here, Paul is not promising us better life circumstances. He's promising us a far better life. And the difference between those two things is profound. What's being held out here, put on the table for anyone who would put their trust in Jesus is the promise of a life in which you are always growing into the image of the only perfect being that's ever graced this planet. This is, this is the promise of a life of, of, of greatness, a life of joy, a life of humility, a life of nobility, a life that will never end. So why can you be happy First off, it's because of the promise here that in Jesus, not only will your bad things turn to good, but secondly, your good things cannot be taken from you. Which brings us to the third and the final principle that we see in these three verses. It's number three, that the best is yet to come. 
In verse 30, Paul writes, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The commentators will tell you that when Paul talks about us being glorified here, he's not, I don't know what comes to mind when you think about that, but Paul's not talking about glory in this kind of general, ethereal, intangible sense. What he's talking about is what Christians refer to as the doctrine of the resurrection. It's the promise that we have that in Jesus, as Jesus Christ was raised with a physical body to new life, never again to be subject to death and decay, so will all who put their trust in him. And actually, if you zoom out to what Paul is saying all through Romans 8, He's saying not only will all those who put their trust in Jesus be raised to new life with a new body, but but all creation will be raised to that same new life as well. So just to summarize here, when Paul's talking about our glorification, he's saying in Jesus the hope that we have is that eventually we will experience new life in a new body, in a new creation that will never again be subject to death and decay. That's what our glorification is biblically speaking, means. Now, this might sound like it's not related, but I'm going somewhere with this, so just, just please hang with me here. To me, for, for whatever reason, over the last several years, I've become more interested in, uh, you know, apologetically defending the truth of Christianity and why you don't have to check your intellect at the door to follow Jesus. That's just become a particular interest of mine, specifically over the last three years. And to me, this is how my mind works Uh, And I've noticed this is also the case with friends of mine who are outside of the faith and and wouldn't call themselves Christians. One of the most um, powerful apologetics for the truth of Christianity, follow me on this, is the the fact that it's a historical fact that the Roman Empire, a a dynasty that existed for about a thousand years, was completely transformed by Christianity in just the span of about two or three centuries. Uh, religious and secular historians agree, uh, Christianity, which is a belief system that on the surface is not easy to believe. Christianity is the belief system that a dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because he was God. That was a belief system that no one in the first century AD was prone to believing, and yet it completely transformed the Roman Empire in, in just a handful of generations. To me, That at least, if you're interested in finding out the truth, that should cause an intellectually responsible person to at least investigate what is is the substance of Christianity. How is it able to do that? But the reason, one of the main reasons that Christianity had that kind of impact in the ancient world and since transforming that empire has gone basically into every nation, tribe, and tongue like no other belief system has over the last 2,000 years, according to a lot of people... Here's my point. It's because what Christianity teaches about our future fulfills the deep longings of the human heart in a way, in a greater way than any, any idea that's ever been proposed. To understand what I mean, you have to understand how people thought in Paul's day. So in, in Paul's day, there were two uh, groups of highly influential people, thought leaders. You may have heard me reference them before, or maybe you've just heard about them. They were groups known as, on the one hand, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed something that, interestingly enough, a lot of people still believe specifically in our modern Western culture. It's this idea that when you die, uh, that's it. Game over. There is no existence after this life. And so for for Epicureans, the point of life was basically to be as happy as you can for as long as you can. Maximize pleasure, minimize suffering, because after this, there's just, there's nothing. 
the, the other school of thought, which was a lot more common in Paul's day, came from a group of people known as the Stoics. And Stoics thought a lot more like Eastern people still do, Hindus and Buddhists. They believe that when you die, you don't stop existing. You just go into what you could call the all-soul of the world, uh, like a drop of water in the ocean. And so what happens in the afterlife is you go on forever, but, but, but ultimately what happens is you lose your individuality. This is a belief system that um, if you've ever seen the, the Pixar movie Soul, it's put on display there. It's actually, believe it or not, articulated really well in The Lion King when little-known theologian Mufasa is teaching his son Simba about the circle of life. And he comforts Simba about his impending mortality by telling him, don't worry, son, when lions die, we become fertilizer, which causes the grass to grow and antelopes eat the grass and lions eat antelope. And so you just, you enter into the circle of life. That's an idea that, that is highly influential uh, in, in the lives of a lot of people and a lot of religions today. It's, it's this idea that you keep going, but it's not personal. So he, here's the problem with that. <clears throat> when someone says... You don't need to be afraid of the future because on the other side of death, there's no existence. Or on the other hand, when somebody says, you don't need to be afraid of the future because on the other side of death, there's an impersonal existence, here's what those two visions of the future have in common. There is no possibility of love there because to give and receive love, you and I have to be a person, an individual, and we have to be with other individuals. <clears throat> and what is crystal clear about, about humanity is, is that we are deeply relational social creatures. And so the main thing that fulfills us and gives our lives meaning, the ultimate thing that gives our lives meaning is giving and receiving love. That's why the cliche is so true that on your deathbed, nobody wishes they spent more time in the office. And so when somebody says, you know what, after this life, you're just, you're gone. There's nothing, but I don't, I'm not afraid of that. I don't really care. What you're actually saying is that on the other side of death, the one thing that gives your life meaning will be stripped from you forever. You will never get it back, and you don't care about that. And to anyone, to, to anyone who says that they believe that, I would as respectfully as possible push back and say, I don't think you have thought that through. It is, a ter- it is a plainly terrifying thing to consider that at the end of however many trips you get around the sun, there is meaninglessness for all eternity. That is a belief system that first off offers you no resources in the midst of suffering, that gives you no good reason to make any meaningful sacrifice for the good of someone else, and at the end of the day, that doesn't even give you a reason to get out of bed this morning if you really think through what it is that you actually believe. But I say all that to say when you hold that vision of the future up alongside Christianity's vision of the future, you see why this gripped the hearts of people like it did. Because what Christianity is promising about your future is that in Jesus, your future is a future of glory. The hope of Christianity is that in Jesus, and only in Jesus, you will one day live to know love without parting. In Jesus, and only in Jesus, you will know life without end. In Jesus, in the resurrection, you will have the body that you always wanted to have but never had in this life. You'll have the relationships you always desired to have but never had in this life. You'll have the life that you always desired to have in a creation completely free from, from, from sin and decay and death. In the novel, The Brothers Karamazov, there's this quote that I think 
puts into words the desire that's in the human heart for a hope like this. It says, I have a childlike conviction that the sufferings will be healed and smoothed over. And then ultimately at the world's finale, in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts to allay all indignation, to redeem all human villainy, all bloodshed. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. That's the hope of Christianity. It's that though though we can't even begin to imagine how an infinite God of infinite wisdom and goodness and power will do it, that somehow when God has finished the work that he started when he came here the first time in Jesus, that things will eventually be so good for all those who put their trust in him that will make up for how bad it was between now and then. That's why it can be said, and I would be so bold, that it can only be said that in Jesus the best really is yet to come. So we've arrived at the end of our time together. Let me call the worship team up, and I will close with a a story. I've shared this one with you before, but if if you're new to the church, first time and definitely not the last time you're going to hear this one. Howell Harris was a a Welsh preacher about 200 years ago who was instrumental in the Welsh revival. And as a preacher, he told the story about how God got a hold of his life in dramatic fashion when he was just a 14-year-old kid. He said when he was 14 years old, he and his family members were standing around the deathbed of his Aunt Lizzie. They knew that she was literally moments away uh, from her death, and they didn't want her to go through that alone. And so they stood around her, and they watched as she closed her eyes, and, and they believed that she was, she was gone. And so they started to reflect on her life. And by all accounts, Aunt Lizzie had lived a, a, a miserable life. She'd lived in poverty. She'd struggled with chronic illness. She was basically always sick with something, and she'd outlived at least one of her husbands. And so Howell Harris, this 14-year-old kid, looking down on his aunt with pity, he said the words out loud, poor Aunt Lizzie. And what he didn't know is that she was not gone. And when she heard those words, she opened her eyes, and she looked at the family members gathered around her deathbed, and she said, who calls me poor? For I am rich. And I will stand before him bold as a lion. And with those words, she closed her eyes. She breathed her last. She stepped into glory. And I I don't have to tell you, Howell Harris never got over that. Because what he knew then, and and really this this is the question that Aunt Lizzie's story still begs every time it's told, is how do you explain that? How do you explain somebody that lived a life that difficult facing their mortality with that much joy. There's not a hint of regret. There's not a hint of self-pity. There's not a hint of, you know, clinging to life in the hope that I can somehow make up for it. There's just this quiet poise and peace and calm and joy and confidence and courageousness and happiness is what it boils down to. And the only way that you can explain that is that Aunt Lizzie understood what Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 are written to teach us. She knew that in Jesus the bad things in her life would work together for good. She knew that in Jesus, the good that God had promised her could never be threatened. No matter what happened to her, it could never be taken from her. Nothing could stop what God had determined to do in her and through her. And ultimately, and maybe most importantly, she knew that in Jesus, the best was yet to come. So she didn't let anybody look down on her. She didn't let anybody pity her. If anything, she pitied other people because she was happier than they were. So what's the application of this teaching? It could not be 
any simpler. For God's glory and for our joy, let's have a happy new year. Because in Jesus, our bad things will work together for good. Our good things cannot be taken, and the best things are yet to come. By grace, through faith, in the name of Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the promise that you've given us in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Thank you for the resources that you've given us to produce an otherworldly joy, no matter what it is that you're allowing us to experience now, no matter what it is that, that you have waiting for us in the coming year. Please help us to be a group of people that become less and less defined and dependent on our circumstances and more and more people that go back to what you have said, what you have spoken in your word and learn over and over again to build our lives on it. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus, that our bad things work together for good. Our good things cannot be taken and the best things are yet to come. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.